well. So I would take a normal breath in through my nose and out through my nose and hold my nose. And then I would hold my breath and nod my head up and down. And I know it sounds so bizarre, mm. but it actually worked. Welcome to the Rhinoplasty podcast with me, Dr. Cameron McIntosh. Today, we have a very special guest all the way from Galway in Ireland, Patrick McEwen. It is such an honor and privilege to have you on the show tonight. Thank you for joining us. Um, Patrick, I know that you are a guru in the world in terms of breathing. And for me as a rhinoplasty surgeon and an ENT working on the upper airways, I know the two of us have been chatting quite a bit over the last couple of months in, in an academic sense, but it's just so nice to have you on the show today and uh, welcome. Great. No, thanks very much, Cameron. I think we're going to have an interesting conversation. You know, you're you're addressing the obstruction. I, I'm trying I'm trying to change the behavior. So hopefully we can meet somewhere in the middle. No, I'm looking forward to it. There, there are all sorts of things to chat about. We're going to be speaking about how to improve breathing post-surgery. We'll also I want to know about some of the books you've been writing. So as as a to kick it off, how did you end up being where you are at the moment? It was totally by chance. Um my background was I did an economics degree, but I grew up as a child having asthma. And I also grew up as a child having a lot of nasal obstruction. And I had sleep disorder breathing in school, but it wasn't recognized. I was falling asleep in, in secondary school, which is high school. And for me to get my grades, it took a lot of effort because I didn't have the focus and the attention to, to remember material. And in 1994, I had an operation on my nose as well to to address it. And uh, I was at university at the time, but I didn't make the switch post-surgery to nasal breathing. I continued mouth breathing following surgery and I continued to have sleep disorder breathing. I was at university in, a, in doing an Erasmus exchange in, in Sweden. And when I was staying in student dorms, the students were telling me that I was snoring and then I would stop breathing, but I had no idea what this was. This is obviously obstructive sleep apnea, but I was tired. And I then came across a newspaper article in 1998. And the, the article spoke about the importance of breathing through the nose and the importance of breathing light. And mm -hmm. I wasn't doing any of those things. Like I can remember going back as far as being a child, going to my friend's parents' house and if I was to have dinner there, the parents would give out to me because I was I was eating with my mouth open because, of course, my nose was stuffy. Mm. And, you mm. know, so it just was pretty much overlooked. So I had about 20 years of, of breathing problems that were overlooked. It absolutely affected my sleep and it absolutely affected my concentration. So so after reading that article, I started doing this nose breathing exercise, which I went back into my university. I got online and I was able to find an exercise to help decongest my nose. And it was simply involving holding my breath. So I would take a normal breath in through my nose and out through my nose and hold my nose. And then I would hold my breath and nod my head up and down. And I know it sounds so bizarre, mm. but it actually worked. And I, I switched from mouth to nose breathing and I felt a lot of air hunger in the transition. It wasn't comfortable. And it wasn't comfortable, not just because of the deviated septum, even though it was fixed, it's still not perfect, but it's not too bad um, because of my breathing pattern disorder. Because you can imagine 10 or 15 years of faster upper chest breathing. And now all of a sudden I'm trying to get that airflow through my nose and I'm feeling air hunger. 
So it wasn't necessarily because of the obstruction of the nose, but the breathing pattern disorder was fading in. But I persisted with it. And I know it sounds a little bit crazy, but that night I got Breed Right strips, which mm -hmm. are the little plastic dilators you wear over your nose. But I also taped my mouth closed using 3M one inch micropore tape. And I woke up the following morning and I didn't notice a huge difference. And I kept on nasal breathing the second day. And I taped again my mouth that night and I woke up the second morning and it was the best night's sleep I had in about 15 years. Wow. So my my asthma control improved enormously. My, the other thing that really improved was not that I had anxiety, but the little bit of tension, you know, that mouth breathing and faster upper chest breathing. I always kind of felt I was a little bit highly strong and maybe that was my nature at the time. But, you know, I felt that that, that I calmed down my sleep and my energy levels were better. My asthma was improving. The control was much better. And I stayed in the economics world like I was never going to teach this. And it was about three years later uh, just a thought came into my head, God, maybe I should be looking at this. And mm. it actually felt really good decision. Now, it wasn't based on logic. It was probably total madness when I look back at it. But I felt it was the right thing to do. And mm. I was a youngster. I was only in my mid-20s. I went to Russia and I trained in Russia and I came back and I started then teaching simple breathing exercise for people with asthma. And that was in 2002. And then I was working always with asthma and then I branched out to help people with snoring and sleep apnea. And then for people with anxiety and panic disorder, which is a little bit more tricky. And then for sports performance. So it's kind of branched and it's evolved a little bit over the years. But yeah, it's been my full time occupation for 18 years. And it's um, it's got to the point now that it's it's really it's really kind of there's an awareness growing on it, you know. Wow. So so there, there are a lot of different listeners on this podcast. Some of them are rhinoplasty surgeons. Some of them might be ENT surgeons. So my, my first reaction is I, I think back to a significant moment in my career was in Versailles in 2017 at the International Meeting of Rhinoplasty Societies. And the keynote speaker who opened the whole Congress uh, was Bauman Guyron from the US, absolute doyen rhinoplasty surgeon. And he showed these three before and after photographs of three beautiful women and how incredible their rhinoplasty results were from before and after. And everyone was like in awe, but he said, no, look very carefully. And in the first three photographs, all their mouths were slightly open. And in the post-surgery, their mouths were closed. And he said, that's the key. They're breathing through their noses now. But what you're telling me is completely next level because we know that in rhinoplasty, function and, and form are hand in glove. Okay, so if someone has a, a functional problem, they're probably going to have a form problem as well. And we need to address that and fix it, be it the nasal valves or whatever it is. But in my mind, what's new, what you're saying is that I will go ahead, I will fix the nose so that it's open, they can breathe again. But there's this rebreathing training. I can't get my head around that. That's new to me. Tell, tell me more about that. Yeah, you know, I suppose when the mouth breathing syndrome, if you have somebody, a child or an adult with their mouth open for a period of time, even after the obstruction is addressed, the mouth breathing behavior is likely to continue. And it's not that we as human beings are breathing through the mouth 100% of the time, but we can spend a certain proportion of our time mouth breathing. You know, when we do physical exercise, when a child is distracted, when somebody is concentrating um, during sleep, 
and especially during sleep. And if you think of probably the reasons that people tend to to go down embarking on the ENT route is, is very often with sleep in children would be as a first line of treatment, adenoidectomy and tonsillectomy for kids. And for adults, it's probably also to help with sleep because if we have a stuffy nose, our sleep is going to be impacted. We're, mm. we're mouth breathing, you know, and it's increasing the risk of obstructive sleep apnea quite considerably. I think it's the one thing that's falling a little bit mm-hmm. is that doctors are treating the obstruction but not changing the behavior. And in terms of an outcome, so a long-term outcome, it's really vital to change the behavior. And one doctor has looked at this, Dr. Christian Guimano. He was accredited with, you know, he would be considered the founding father of sleep medicine. And he coined the phrase obstructive sleep apnea back in the 1970s. And he also developed the apnea hypopnea index. And the last five years of his life, he passed away, sadly, last year or the year before even. But the last five years of his life, he spoke about the critical importance of restoring nasal breathing during sleep. And not just during sleep, but also during wakefulness. And he said with children that there's a 65% worsening in the AHI index within three years. There's a 65% relapse within three years unless nasal breathing is restored. And I remember I spoke with him at a number of different conferences and I can remember him talking and he's standing up and he said, we need engineers and we need medical doctors and we need all of these wonderful professions. But he said, in quote, children's brains are getting fried. And when we know the impact of sleep disorder breathing on cognitive development in children, if we look at Karen Bonnock's study of 11,000 children in Stratford-upon-Avon published in Pediatrics in 2012, children with sleep disorder breathing, of which mouth breathing is a contributory factor, they had, if if untreated by age five, they had a 40% increased risk of special education needs by age eight. And, you know, we're all, any of us with kids, we're all familiar that if the child has a poor night's sleep, they're not in a great mood the following day. But we have to think more than that. We have to think of the permanent, the possible permanent reduction in cognitive Mm. development Mm. as a result of poor sleep quality during childhood. And nasal breathing is is an important factor there. Massive, eh? So, so Patrick, we often joke and say to patients, your good nose job is good for your sex life because... If you yes. don't snore and you can breathe properly and you have a good night's rest, a lot, lot of good things that can happen. I, I'm interested, very interested with this article that you guys have just published in uh, in the Journal of Clinical Medicine, now in February of uh, last month, um, where you speak about breathing re-education and the different phenotypes. So before you speak about the phenotypes, perhaps, or maybe speak about the phenotypes and then tell us how, how do we actually re-educate our patients with breathing? Yeah, so there's sleep medicine has changed quite quite considerably over the last seven years that especially with obstructive sleep apnea, it's recognized that it's not solely an anatomical issue, that there are four different characteristics in sleep disorder, breathing and sleep apnea. And one of those is anatomical, which is peak And this is the suction pressure at which the upper airway collapses. Mm. But there are three non-anatomical um, characteristics. One is called loop gain. And this is an interesting one. of the sleep apnea population have high loop gain. And with this, anatomical intervention doesn't work as effectively. You need a non-anatomical intervention. And what an individual with high loop gain, it can be measured using breath hold time during wakefulness. So Mm -hmm. you can imagine a patient or client comes into you 
and they're sitting down in front of you and, you know, you let them kind of settle down, their breathing settles down. And then you ask the patient, I would like you to take a normal breath in through your nose and out through your nose and pinch your nose. And I want to time how long can you hold your breath for until you feel the first definite desire to breathe. So it's not a maximum length of breath hold time, but it's a length of breath hold time until you feel maybe the first involuntary movement of the diaphragm. And that length of breath hold time will provide an indicator. If the so person has... What is normal then? Normal would be 25 seconds. So now, believe it or believe it not. Um, and, you know, the vast majority of the population don't have 25 seconds. But in studies, functional breathing is when the comfortable breath hold time after an exhalation is 25 seconds. Oh. Now, you will see people coming in with respiratory complaints, people coming in with obstructive sleep apnea, people coming in with anxiety, and they can have really, really poor breath hold times. These people have excessive you know, disproportionate breathlessness during physical exercise. Mm. They typically breathe faster using the upper chest. They're more likely to breathe through an open mouth. And, you know, they're more likely to be in that fight or flight response. So what does high loop gain mean? High loop gain means that you have a strong chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide. And during a sleep apnea, as the individual stops breathing, mm. carbon dioxide is going to increase in the blood. And if you have a strong chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide, it means that when you resume breathing, you resume breathing with exaggerated ventilation mm -hmm. to the minimal mm -hmm. increases of carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. So now you're going from hypercapnia, which happens during the holding of the stopping of the breath, to hypocapnia because of the exaggerated ventilation yes. post-apnea. And hypocapnia, the brain isn't going to send a signal to breathe, and this can bring on a central apnea, but also... When the output from the brain to, to the respiratory muscles is low, the output from the brain to the upper airway dilator muscles is also reduced and the upper airway can collapse more easily. So somebody with high loop gain, it's almost as if their breathing is, is very unstable. It's waxing and waning. It's going mm -hmm. from stopping of the breath to hyperventilation, which in turn is feeding back into the next apnea. And you have that vicious circle. And the one way, I don't think there are many ways of addressing high loop gain mm. other than changing breathing patterns during wakefulness. Wow. And it's by changing breathing patterns during wakefulness that breathing becomes lighter and softer during sleep. Now, you're going to get to the changing the patterns now. So we've spoken yes. the phenotypes, the, the, the one obviously as, as the surgeons is when the upper airways collapse, especially in the nose. The second one is now the high loop gain. Yes. And the third one now is arousal threshold. In actual fact, arousal threshold may be the one to watch out for. This is when a person presents with a relatively low AHI, but they're, they have, they're easily awoken from sleep. So they have a low arousal threshold. It doesn't take much in terms of negative pressure or change in, in chemical, in blood chemical for the person to arouse from sleep. So they have constant sleep fragmentation. Mm -hmm. And it was a paper published by the American Thoracic Society looking at 5,000 individuals and the phenotype which had the greatest risk of mortality was low arousal threshold. Now, if you were to look at the AHI index, it's going to be mild, but it's because this group of people, they have insomnia and obstructive sleep apnea that even if they have the slightest interruption of their breathing, it's causing sleep fragmentation. Now, so how can we change that? Well, if you think of, say, 
I often say there's two forms of insomnia, but that's my words. Mm -hmm. You can have an individual who has difficulty falling asleep when they first go to bed. And very often stress can play a role there. The, mm -hmm. the person's mind is racing. Their, their mind is in a state of agitation. We need to teach the person how to switch off. We need to help dampen the sympathetic response and increase mm -hmm. the parasympathetic response, stimulate the vagus nerve, bring the person into a state of feeling drowsy, which mm -hmm. we can do by slowing down their breathing. The second time that a person can wake up during sleep is after they have four or five hours sleep. Now, this is the more challenging one because they are after having four or five hours of sleep. They're not quite you know, they're not quite exhausted enough now to fall back asleep, but they're not quite awake either to get up. And we also look at what is causing people to wake up. And one aspect here could be a faster respiratory rate. And this has been known since 1991. Wow. But more research in 2017 from Stanford Medical School, they identified a new structure in the brain. And they said that this structure is spying on your breathing. And if you breathe fast, this structure is more likely to arouse you from sleep. So if we think of people with poor breathing patterns, with a low breath toll time during wakefulness, people with asthma very often have faster breathing and upper chest breathing, as do people with anxiety. So the faster respiratory rate during sleep then can arouse them from sleep, and as a result then can contribute to lower arousal threshold. So what do we do in terms of helping people with lower arousal threshold? One is nasal breathing because, and it hasn't been studied very much, Cameron, unfortunately, mm -hmm. but I've worked with maybe 8,000 people directly over the last 20 years. Mm. And I have seen it reproduced time and time again, that when people breathe through their nose during sleep, they wake up feeling more refreshed. Mm. Now, here is where I think the research is falling a little bit. And I'm going to give you this example. Mm. You could look through a number of different medical papers. Uh, the researchers are investigating whether nasal surgery has helped with sleep or mm. whether treatment of the nose using corticosteroids has helped mm -hmm. or whether nasal dilators have helped. And sometimes the researchers come up with the conclusion that nasal obstruction seems to play a minor enough role. And I've seen this, mm. you know, it plays a minor role in sleep disorder breathing. The key here is that the researchers are looking at the treatment that the patient is, is undergoing, but mm. that none, none of the researchers have actually asked the question if the patient is actually breathing through their nose. There's no point in fixing the nose and there's no point in taking nasal steroids and then going mm. to bed. And we know that mouth breathing, it affects about 50% of the adult population. Mm. So, you know, we tape them out and I'll be straight out with that. And I can show you a version of the tape that we use mm, because, mm. of course, you know, we want to have it within safety. So the tape that we use is called Myotape. And it was a tape that I developed. And the reason being was because I wanted to help restore and change breathing patterns mm. in children. We yeah. couldn't, of course, of course, we couldn't put anything across the child's mouth. And as a behavioral change, so it's it's called myotape. This is the adult's mm -hmm. version. And the new one is a different color, but this is the older one here. But you, you'll kind of get the idea. So it's a stretchable cotton tape okay. and it's hypoallergenic in terms of the glue, which is applied for the skin. And we apply it around the So it's the tension created by the tape, which is bringing the lips together. So you see that my lips are a little bit pouting here. 
Yes, yes. And also the tension here is helping to activate the orbicularis muscle. Yes. But it's helping to maintain the behavior of nose breathing during sleep. And even with CPAP compliance, it's very important that the person does maintain nasal breathing during sleep. Otherwise, mm. it's not going to be effective. Mm. We use this tape for children during wakefulness to tra- change the behavior. And we also use it then with adults and older children during sleep. Once we have established that children can breathe functionally through the nose. Now, the interesting thing about the human nose is the more we use it, the better it works. And I'll come just maybe back to the last phenotype of sleep apnea and how breathing can play a role there. And this is called upper airway recruitment. And we have a subset of a subset of muscles in the throat which are designed to help maintain an open airway. Mm-hmm. And of course, these muscles become lazy during sleep. But there's a couple of factors that contribute to the working of these muscles. And one is carbon dioxide. So earlier on with loop gain, I said that when a person has unstable breathing and if they are breathing hard and fast during sleep and if their CO2 levels are you know, going too low into hypocapnia, the upper airway dilator muscles don't function mm-hmm. so adequately. Mm-hmm. But another gas that plays a role there is nitric oxide. It's known that nitric oxide from the nose plays some role as an eric'rine messenger, mm. but I don't think it's fully understood how. Mm-hmm. I agree. So, you know, it's that's just applying or looking at it. And it's not just about asking the person to breathe through the nose during sleep. We also have to bear in mind, why does obstructive sleep apnea increase as we, we become obese? You know, and it's not just because of the fat deposits on the tongue or increased fat pads on the throat, but it's also because we have increased fat on the belly. Mm-hmm. Now, when we have increased fat on the belly, it's impinging the movement of the diaphragm. So we're not getting good amplitude of the diaphragm, which in turn is reducing lung volume. And when there is a reduction to lung volume, the throat is more liable to collapse. So the throat is stiffer when lung volume is good. So diaphragmatic breathing is important. Mm -hmm. We have to think of the airway, whether it's the upper airway and the lower airway, it's one airway. And when we look, and I was always intrigued with people with asthma, why did so many people with asthma coming in when I talked to them about their sleep, their sleep was dreadful. And I was also in that category. And of course, we can consider that people would ask me, you have inflammation of the lungs that travels up to the nose. You have mm-hmm. a stuffy mm-hmm. nose, your mouth breathing, but also the breathing pattern. Mm-hmm. With asthma, the condition, you know, when you feel that the lower airways are tightening, you feel that you're not getting enough air. It's a natural reaction to breathe harder and faster. Mm-hmm. The harder and faster breathing is likely to cause us to switch to mouth breathing because The one thing is we as human beings, we are not going to maintain nasal breathing if we don't feel comfortable breathing Mm. through the nose. Mm. Mm. So that air hunger can cause mouth breathing and that mouth breathing and faster and upper chest breathing is a recipe for sleep disorder breathing. Mm. Wow. Okay. So Patrick, I'm following you here now. You've explained these four phenotypes, like you've kind of turned my world a little bit upside down because I, as a surgeon, I want to fix the nose. Patient can breathe through their nose. What you're actually saying to us here is that we're treating the symptoms. We're not treating the cause. So this is for me interesting now. So, okay, say, for example, I go and 
even today, I did a rhinoplasty where one nostril is completely obstructed, so I've got to straighten out the septum and secure the nasal valves. We actually sometimes use titanium implants like breathe right strips. But that's not good enough is what you're basically saying. You're saying, no, Cameron, you need to actually retrain this patient how they need to breathe. So explain that to me. How, how do I teach a patient to learn how to breathe properly after I have surgically corrected the airways? Sure. I'll go to that. And I'm going to just put out something. Um, has there ever been a study after a group of patients who have performed rhinoplasty has there ever been a study investigating if they are actually using their nose quite considerably during wakefulness and sleep post-surgery? It would be a very interesting study. So uh, that's a good question because I'm not sure if there has. What we mm. a lot of the time do is we we want both two, the two areas of how we test patients post-surgery is the patient-related outcome measures. So the patient filling in a questionnaire before and putting a questionnaire afterwards. But there are a number of ways of testing nasal airflow. In my practice, I use four-phase rhinomanometry. So I can test the airflow and the pressure in each nostril individually in inspiration and expiration. But it only tells me how is the nose doing yes. after surgery. It doesn't tell me how the, if the nose breathing anymore. That I just have to explain to patients, yeah, you'll be breathing through your nose. But suddenly I'm, I'm not sure if I can say that anymore. So in terms of the human nose, then I think it was Dr. Morris Cottle, and he was an ear, nose and throat doctor from the United States. And he said that the human nose is responsible for 30 functions in the human body. Now, we know from the literature that between 25 to 50 percent of studied children persistently mouthbreed. We know in the adult population that individuals over 40 years of age, they are six times more likely to breathe through an open mouth. And a recent paper published in Laryngoscope in May of 2020 95 individuals with established obstructive sleep apnea, at least over 50% of them. In actual fact, only 35 out of the 95% were breathing solely through their nose. And 11 of them were breathing solely through the mouth. And the vast majority of them were either breathing both through nose and mouth mm. at different mm. times, switching. So when I have a student coming into me, I first start off with the functions of the nose and I talk about, you know, you're breathing through your nose, you're more likely to engage the diaphragm. Mouth breathing, you're taking cold, dry, unfiltered air. Mm. And if we consider what does the mouth do in terms of breathing? Is there any function performed by the mouth in terms of breathing? And there's not. If we breathe through the mouth, that air goes straight down our throat. And when we consider the extent of the nasal cavity, it's a wonderful organ in the human mm. body. And it performs so many functions. And it's been shown in different studies that memory can be improved by nasal breathing. When you breathe through your nose, you're harnessing nasal nitric oxide. It's a bronchodilator. You know, the PO2 in the blood is increased. Since 1988, this has been known that the PO2 is increased by 10% with nasal breathing versus mouth breathing. Now, so I go, I talk to that with my clients and I talk to them about the importance of nasal breathing. I then start them off with different breathing exercises in order to normalize their minute ventilation because many of the patients coming in will have a higher respiratory rate. They could be breathing 17 or 18 breaths per minute. Now, it's not just enough to teach the person how to slow down their breathing because in the process of slowing down their breathing, they can increase the tidal volume. So minute ventilation remains unchanged. So what, what, what I have them do is I actually have them 
reduce the volume of air that they are breathing in. So I would ask them, for example, to put one hand on their chest, one hand just above their navel. And I asked them to focus on the airflow coming in and out of the nose. And I asked them to really slow down the speed of the air coming into the nose. And at the top of the breath, a really relaxed and a slow and relaxed exhalation. And then a very soft and gentle breath coming into the nose and a very relaxed and a slow, gentle exhalation. And the whole purpose of this is just to gently allow carbon dioxide to accumulate in the blood and that they feel air hunger. And the premise is that exposing them to slightly elevated CO2 that we can reduce their, we can improve their chemosensitivity. And as a result, then their breathing rate will naturally start to lower. So we typically start with the volume of breathing. And sometimes people have labored breathing coming in and they wouldn't be able to perform that exercise. So with people with panic disorder, the feeling of suffocation can be a little bit too much. So instead, I give them small breath hold exercises mm -hmm. and we alter it. So and for now example, you, you were explaining about your hand on your chest and hand on your belly. Yeah, yes. I was just, whilst I was listening to you, I was trying to do the same. And I noticed that it was my stomach hand that was moving. My chest wasn't moving at all. I That's was, good. So I was breathing but, through my diaphragm. Eh? Yes, that's good to have, you know, to have good amplitude of the diaphragm. You know, when the diaphragm is moving downwards, you're going to have movement to your sides. You'll have lateral expansion. You'll have some movement to the back and you have some movement to the front. But if you were to look at a lot of your patients coming in, especially if they've got a history of nose problems, you know, I don't think anybody is going to functionally breathe through their nose when their nose is a problem. They naturally mm. switch mm. to mouth breathing. And probably by the time that they embark in ear, nose and throat surgery, it's not this nose breathing didn't this mouth breathing problem didn't start yesterday. Yes. This could be going on for 10 or 15 years. And, you know, people eventually want to do something about it when they've tried many other things and they're saying the behavior is entrenched there. So there's three different dimensions that we look in terms of breathing. We look at the biochemistry, which is about normalizing sensitivity to carbon dioxide, or at least reducing sensitivity to carbon dioxide to improve breath hold time. And the objective there would be to normalize minute ventilation. And the second dimension is that we look at improving the biomechanics. So we do need the person to breathe nose, slow mm -hmm. and low. But even I go as far as saying light, slow and deep. And the acronym there is LSD. So light is about gently softening <clears throat> and taking less air into your nose, mm -hmm. exposing your body to a slight elevation of carbon dioxide. And the body is very sensitive to an accumulation of CO2, but it's to have a gentle feeling or a tolerable feeling of air hunger, a similar feeling that you would experience if you're going for a walk. So we have the person deliberately underbreed. Mm -hmm. And typically if somebody was coming into me to help with sleep issues, I would have them underbreed for at least 15 minutes before sleep. I would also have them do all of their physical exercise with their mouth closed, which in turn is going to help with their breathing. They feel mm -hmm. an increased air hunger. And I'd also have them practice maybe 10 minutes twice daily of slowing down their breath to the feeling of air hunger. Now, people will come in with snoring, Cameron. And sometimes they're asking, well, how could this help with snoring? And I say to them, well, make the sound of a snore through your mouth. And it goes a little bit like this. And now what I would like you to do is to close your mouth and snore through your mouth. And they can't, of course. Yes, yes. 
So mount snoring we can stop once we get the mouth closed and we use taping for that. Now I asked him to make the sound of a snore through the nose and it goes like this. And now I asked him to breathe slow. Breathe very slowly through your nose, a slow gentle breath in and a very slow and relaxed and gentle breath out. And a slow breath in and a very relaxed and a slow gentle breath out. And as you breathe slowly, try and snore through your nose. And you will see that it is possible, but it's more difficult. Mm. We have to approach the airway from the point of view of an engineer approaching a pipe. And no engineer is going to approach a pipe without looking at flow. Mm-hmm. And minute ventilation could be a very interesting um, you know, criteria to, to assess with patients coming in after a history of chronic mouth breathing. Are they breathing fast? And also to assess them for hyperventilation syndrome. And I know there was one paper published by Dr. James Bartley. He's a near nose and throat doctor from New Zealand. And he published it in 2005. He looked at 14 patients who returned back to their doctor. And the patients were returning back to their doctor and saying to their doctor, doctor, I just feel my nose is stuffy. And the doctor would assess their nose and you know, it seemed that the patients had an adequate nasal airway, mm. but the patients continued to complain of air hunger. Mm. And when Dr. Bartley assessed their breathing patterns, they all had an elevated respiratory rate and they had upper chest breathing. Mm-hmm. So the air hunger that we experience, as I said at the start, it's not necessarily, you know, just due to um, anatomically compromised mm. nasal airway, but also the flow is an issue. And it's how we breathe during wakefulness, which in turn is influencing how we breathe during sleep and also physical exercise. Mm. And mm-hmm. if we look at the cohort of the population with dysfunctional breathing, the normal population, according to a Cochrane review, is about 9.5% of the population have dysfunctional breathing patterns. In asthma, it increases to about 30%. I think it's more. But in the anxiety population, it's as high as 75%. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And here's an interesting connection between anxiety and sleep. I have people coming into me over the years and they come in with depression and they come in with panic and anxiety. And I'll always ask them, when you wake up in the morning, how do you feel? And they will often tell me that they wake up feeling exhausted. Mm-hmm. And I will ask them, has your doctor ever encouraged you to do a sleep study? And generally the answer is no. And I think the reason here is because the doctor or healthcare professional is assuming that it's the depression which is causing their exhaustion. But we have to now look at this. This person could be prone to obstructive sleep apnea. They're waking up feeling chronically exhausted. They can't Mm -hmm. cope Mm -hmm. with normal day to day life. This is increasing anxiety. Chronic anxiety then is turning into depression. So maybe we also have to be looking at the question in terms of mental health. Can we address mental health unless we can improve sleep quality? Mm. And can we improve sleep quality unless we have functional breathing in and out through the nose, driven by the diaphragm, light, slow and deep? Mm. Now, Patrick, I can't agree with you more. I mean, we spend at least a third of our life sleeping. It's, It's such a... I've just forgotten the name of the author. Fantastic book I read last year about sleep. I just want to ask you a question. Yes, yes. David Walker, is it? So so I want to ask you a question in terms of the empty nose syndrome. 
Because here we yes. don't have laminar flow. We've got turbulent flow. You can look right through the nose, and yet the patient's complaining that their nose is a block. Tell me what yes. your thoughts are around this. It's a very interesting one. I don't know what my thoughts are on it, but if when I read one paper that was published, I think by the American Thoracic Society, looking at individuals with empty nose syndrome, and 77%, it was a small enough population, it was only in the mid-20s, but 77% of those individuals with empty nose syndrome had chronic hyperventilation syndrome. And maybe it could make sense because if you're breathing hard and fast through the nose mm. and the sensations, you're feeling the sensations that you're not getting enough air and they're all paradoxical. Um, it would be very interesting to do this study, not just looking at whether people with empty nose syndrome have hyperventilation syndrome, but let's check what happens empty nose syndrome when you improve functional breathing patterns. So when you get the individual to breathe less air, when you get the person to improve their functional breathing, because the confusing thing about this, Cameron, is people who are mouth breathing, the mouth has much less resistance to breathing during mm. wakefulness than the nose. It's two to three times, the mm. nose is two to three times more than the mouth. But mouth breathers don't complain of drowning and suffocation. They can complain, though, of air hunger. And they'll often tell you that the one thing that they feel is they cannot get a satisfying breath. Mm -hmm. And it can drive up anxiety. So, you know, then the resistance imposed by the nose during wakefulness can be very important for mental health and for helping to dampen the sympathetic drive mm -hmm. and to bring a feeling of calmness to the mind. So the turbulent breathing, the faster breathing, the harder breathing, maybe upper chest breathing, which in turn then is contributing to symptoms of empty nose syndrome. I think there's an interesting connection there. I'm not fully sure of the link. Mm. We don't see all that many people. I, you know, in fairness, I've had thousands of people coming in through my doors. And I'd say if I seen two or three people with empty nose syndrome, that was about it. So I suppose yes. I don't have the experience of dealing with it to give you a full answer. Yeah, it's very, it's very rare. It's spoken about more than actually seen. Um, yeah, Patrick, there's some stuff I want to ask you. So let me ask you now, if, if I was a, a, a listener on the podcast, uh, let's just talk about your books for a bit, because what are the resources that um, I would say the general public can get hold of to try and help them? I also want to speak about the rhinoplasty surgeons, maybe a little bit about ENTs, but to kick it off with, if if somebody needs help, where do they go to? Um, for children, I've put all of the exercises for children, It's for, they're free online. So if you go go to YouTube and put in Patrick McKeown, Children's Breathing, they mightn't necessarily be in order, but you'll see all of the exercises for okay, kids, awesome. you know, so and I would say start off if, if any of your listeners have a little bit of a stuffy nose. Let's see if you can free it yourself. And I'm going to give you this exercise. Okay. Um, don't do this if you're pregnant and don't do it if you've got serious medical conditions. I am going to ask you to hold your breath until you feel a moderate air hunger. And if you're prone to panic or anxiety, just go a little bit easier. Okay. Now, the exercise is as follows. You take a normal breath in through your nose and out through your nose and you pinch your nose with your fingers and then start walking on the spot as you hold your breath just to build up carbon dioxide and to activate a sympathetic response. Keep holding your breath and keep walking until you feel a relatively strong air hunger. Then let go, but breathe in through your nose 
and calm your breathing. Calm your breathing immediately. Breathe normally for about a minute and do it again. Take a normal breath in through your nose and out through your nose and pinch your nose and hold and walk holding your breath until you feel a moderate to strong air hunger and then let go and breathe in through your nose. Repeat that five or six times. Mm -hmm. Your nose will be freer in general after that exercise. So oftentimes we use it if somebody comes in, for example, I had a rugby player yesterday, I was working with them virtually and nose very badly damaged because of rugby and wondering, can we bring some freedom to the nose? And you're wondering what's, you know, is it because of the deviated septum or is it because of inflammation? What's causing the obstruction? Even with the rugby player, I was able to get some freedom. Of course, it's not going to be perfect. Mm, But, mm. you know, at the very least, we can help to, when it's reversible obstruction, using that breath hold is really, really wonderful. I think there's a vicious circle. You know, you feel your nose is stuffy, so you switch to mouth breathing. And then when you switch to mouth breathing, it's only feeding back into nasal congestion. Mm, Exactly. And... There was one paper that was published and saying that, you know, that one of the functions of the human nose is to retain moisture on the exhale breath. So when we breathe out through the nose, the nose is capturing moisture and heat. And it's by capturing heat and moisture on the exhale breath that's helping to keep to keep the nose mm. open. So they had a group of individuals breathe in through their nose and out through their mouth. And they measured nasal obstruction. And it happened pretty quickly by breathing in through the nose and out through the mouth in comparison to nasal nose, nose breathing. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So for listeners, I would say, try that exercise and see, does it help your nose? And, you know, if you're sitting down late at night and you want to prepare yourself to calm down the body and, you know, to, to bring yourself into relaxation, have your mouth closed, focus on the airflow coming in and out of the nose and gently slow down the speed of your breathing to the point that you feel a little bit of an air hunger. After about four to five minutes, you'll start to notice increased watery saliva in the mouth. And you'll also start to notice that you're feeling drowsy. Mm. And it's important for people, especially for insomnia, that you downregulate towards the end of the night, not to have our heads stuck in mobile phones and apps mm. and all of that stuff, but to bring some attention inwards. And because, you know, Somebody somebody wakes up feeling tired. How do you know whether it's sleep apnea or hypopnea or insomnia? Because the symptoms are going to be quite similar and there's an overlap anyway. Mm. And as I said earlier on, with people with insomnia and obstructive sleep apnea, when it goes together, the risk of depression is higher. Mm. And this ties then full circle. So The books, I've written a new book called The Breathing Cure. Now, I didn't come up with the title. I'm not making any claims on cures, but it was our publisher in the United States. And it's 190,000 words. And I'm looking at the application of breathing for children. And it includes all Mm -hmm. of the exercises, but also for adults. Now, we've brought in, for example, different categories, such as for diabetes, for epilepsy, for sleep disorder breathing, Female breathing is very much different to male breathing, written about since 1905, and especially with younger females. So during the monthly cycle, days 10 to days 22, there's an increase in progesterone, which is a respiratory stimulant. And as a result, carbon dioxide levels can drop by as much as 25%. And this then can feed into increased pain. You know, it lowers pain threshold. 
It can contribute to anxiety. And I would say it may have an impact on sleep in the younger females, but certainly it's when the female goes postmenopausal that sleep disorder breathing increases quite significantly. And anecdotally, just from women who have been contacting us, hot flashes or hot flushes, depending on where, what country you're in, by getting them out closed, it seems to make a difference. And it may be because we've also been monitoring heart rate variability. Individuals who are wearing aura rings, we have 700 instructors. So we get a lot of information coming mm. in from different people. Um, 400 of them are true Buteco and 300 are true Oxygen Advantage. Many of them report the impacts on HRV, for example. I'm not a technological person. I don't, I don't, mm -hmm. you know, I don't use it. But in terms of using Aura Ring and monitoring sleep quality, breathing through the nose, it seems to show improved heart rate variability. Yeah. We may be getting a better balance in the autonomic nervous system. And with that, by nasal breathing, but also with functional breathing patterns. Sure. So you, you mentioned the oxygen advantage. That was six years ago that you published that book. Yes. Um, yeah. How different is it to the new book? Oh, it's very different. The oxygen advantage was mainly aimed at the alpha male because when I was giving functional breathing for anxiety and Ireland was a total disaster case economically after, you know, the, we call it the so-called Celtic tiger crashed and there was a lot of anxiety here in Ireland. And I was putting out short courses, bringing mindfulness and just helping to bring a calmness to people's minds and physiologically to address their, their breathing patterns. But about, about 90 to 95% of the people who came were females. And I asked the question, I said, where are all the men in this? So that's when the oxygen advantage came about. Breathing, bringing breathing exercises into sports, but at the same time, taking attention out of the mind and, you know, dispersing mm. it throughout the body. And there's nothing new agey about it. Mm. It's just that a racing mind is very, very common and mm. it does mm. contribute to anxiety and it also impacts focus and concentration. So the oxygen advantage was about improving sports performance by changing breathing. And the breathing cure is looking at the overall. So it's, it's a big chunky buck. So far, it's been well received, um, you know, so it'll be interesting. It's, it's only just launched. Well, that's great. Eh? So, Patrick, I want to I wanna kind of conclude this for mm. what would your message be to the rhinoplasty surgeon? If, if you could say th the three key things you could like to share with rhinoplasty surgeons around the world, what would those be? I think we need to do follow-up. It's vitally important to follow up with patients, both the pediatric population and also the adult population in terms of are they actually breathing through their nose post-treatment? Post um, it would be such an important study. And I think really so for pediatrics, when we think of the kids who are undergoing adenoidectomy and tonsillectomy, and you know what, intuitively, I feel that the vast majority of these children continue mouth breathing mm. and it's overlooked. And there are a small number of ear, nose and throat doctors who now know about this and mm. they are on board and they are observing it and they bring in respiratory rehabilitation. So it's mm. basically brain breathing retraining. That would be one aspect. Another aspect is any investigation of nasal breathing during sleep, during the investigations, we need to ask the question, 
if the subjects are actually breathing through their nose. How do you know that a person is breathing through their nose during sleep unless you bring in some sort of support? Because, you know, people might go to bed with their, their mouth closed, but what happens during the middle of the night? Mm. And ideally, of course, you're going to wake up with, with a moist mouth in the morning. Nasal breathing is not just the, the, it's not all about nasal breathing. It's also very important to address hyperventilation syndrome especially mm -hmm. with sleep apnea and snoring. And because the turbulence and the resistance in the upper airway is not solely due to anatomical factors. And now with the phenotypes of sleep apnea, you know, mm -hmm. we have to look at measuring breath hold time with people with OSA. And do they have mm -hmm. a low breath hold time, which can mm -hmm. indicate that they have high loop gain? Do they have low arousal threshold? So these individuals who are presenting to their ear, nose and throat doctor, they're waking up feeling exhausted, but it's not just the anatomy that's the issue. They can also have insomnia. We need to help address their breathing and also, you know, help improve from a psychological point of view, bringing mm. a calmness to the mind, improving mm. parasympathetic tone, dampening, dampening sympathetic tone. So I would love to see more research in this. And mm. I would also love to see more research in terms of using breathing exercises and breath holding, what difference it can do in terms of imparting functional breathing for mm. the population with chronic rhinitis and with, with nasal issues. Mm. Oh, well, that's awesome. No, listen, I, I think this message is going to send ripples around the rhinoplasty world. <laughs> um, I think there is a great need for us to, to do this, to get together and study and see have we actually are patients now breathing through their noses because it's very easy for us to say wow look at how i fix the nose look you can see through the nose and the patient's happy but have they actually changed because i've even had a few patients come back to me saying wow i could get air through my nose but then a few months later today but my nose is still blocked and if i examine them it's still a great surgical outcome but yeah. now i understand why i need to we need to do some breathing retraining exercises Yes, it would be absolutely wonderful. And I think it would be great for patients. Yeah. Well, Patrick, I just really want to, from my side, just thank you for your time today um, and commend you for what you've done. I mean, you've, you've, you've had more than two decades of doing this. And I kind of feel like I've just scratched the tip of an iceberg here of how much more there is in this. So I, I do hope that um, you have great success with your book. Um, and encourage the listeners to get onto the website. You want to just re remind us what is the website they must find you on? Sure. The website for performance would be oxygenadvantage.com and the website based on the Buteco method would be butecoclinic.com. Awesome. Wow. Well, Patrick, thank you very much. Um, and to our listeners, thank you for this special episode. We'll be continuing with our monthly interviews with Every, which goes out every Sunday with a rhinoplasty surgeon. But today it was the first time we could have somebody who's not a rhinoplasty surgeon on the side. So thank you very much for that. Thank you, doctor.